the future of uh, entrepreneurship is innovation. And, and I believe that because we have millions of people being educated to a high standard in India and China and, and countries like that these days. They're turning out degree qualified people, uh, quality degree qualified people, and the world is getting flatter and the boundaries are becoming less important. So I really believe that the real commodity of value is original thought, design, um, and genuine innovation in process and product. And so I think that's even more important because most pain points have been sort of solved and you've got to push to the next level and recognize that innovation actually will reveal um, the pain that is not obvious. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a tenacious, focused, and courageous serial entrepreneur who has ridden the highs and the lows of business success. He has built several multi-million dollar companies in Australia and the USA, including co-founding Reliable Education and Zonguru. Considered an Amazon thought leader, he authored the book Primed in 2017. With Amazon catalyzing a massive disruption in the retail industry, he simplifies a hyperlogical yet counterintuitive approach to successfully launching consumer brands on the platform. Our guest is featured on credible media platforms including The Brian Tracy Show, Sky Business News, USA Today, Inc.com and The Wall Street Journal. I have the privilege to present to you a man of resilience, authenticity, a huge smile and a genuine desire to make a difference, Adam Hudson. Adam, welcome to the show. Craig, thank you. That is one of the best intros I've heard in a long time. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And I'm sure you're smiling being up there on the, uh, in the Gold Coast or up in Brisbane at the moment. And uh, I am. I'm looking at a beautiful ocean right now. It's stunning. Excellent. I'm very jealous. I'm looking out at the mountain and it's looking quite cold right now. So with a company named Reliable Education, I can only presume that you either had a great or a shaky relationship with school when you were growing up. What fascinated <laughs> you during your teenage years? Oh, look, I, I think early on, uh, you know, I was good at school when I applied myself, but I grew up actually where you are in Canberra and Queanbeyan area. And um, I think I just figured out early on that I, I really got a kick out of the idea of being in control of my own destiny. But the first time somebody explained the word entrepreneur to me, I leant in and went, I want to be one of those. And um, I, I want to be somebody who creates my own things and, and uh, you know, charts my own course. So that, that was really what lit me up. School, I just enjoyed the, the, the social component more, but I wasn't a superstar student. I never went to university. So I just finished high school, went to work at the age of 15, and um, I've been self-employed since uh, the age of 23, and I'm 45 now. So what did you start out doing when you were first employed at the age of 15? Well, I, I probably started a bit younger than I, I was actually a tool cleaner at a, at a mechanics workshop in Queanbeyan when I was about 14. So I used to go around there and I used to clean the tools for the mechanics. 
I paid me probably five bucks an hour or something. And then I'd go ride my bike over to McDonald's and I'd work at McDonald's and then I'd mow lawns in any spare time I had. I was really just keen to get into it. I don't know what it was in me, but I, I was keen to go. I actually moved out of home when I was 15. Wow. Uh, and and uh, so, yeah, and it wasn't family problems. I was just keen to get out into the world. I had a great upbringing. And, uh, and then I started working in a one-hour Photoshop processing. And there you go, I'm showing my age there. <laughs> so by your early 20s, you were already creating companies. You know, what was the spark that lit the flame for you to become an entrepreneur? Well, you know, it's funny. It's not the most positive story, but I remember having a stand-up argument with my dad once, and I was like teenage boys do, you know, and he said, well, if you don't like it, then you can get your own place and make your own rules. <laughs> and I did a Tony Robbins seminar years later, and he said, well, we've got to get to the root of what your drive is. And I realized there was an argument with my old man that actually was the moment I decided I'm going to make more money than my dad. That was always my very negative goal when I started. <laughs> So just trying to prove them wrong a little bit, was it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So was your first company focused on something that you desired, an opportunity no. that arose, or some other trigger? Look, I was I was actually reading a um, magazine called The Rob Report, which I think is still getting around in some places in the world. Um, and I saw this magazine from America with all these fancy things, and I was like, I'd love to one day have enough money to you know, buy a Porsche or something I mean, as, a, as a kid. And... Um, I saw an ad in there for um, somebody looking for people to distribute sort of success-oriented courses, you know, like you know, tapes and books and things like Tony Robbins materials in Australia. And so I, I rang them up on my lunch break and um, ended up getting started with this company. It was kind of like a multi-level marketing thing, but not really. It was sort of a hybrid. So I started selling these things by putting little ads in the newspapers. Uh, what they called the Quest newspaper groups and people would ring up and I, I had a pager and I'd call my, back my leads on my lunch break and I started selling enough of these things that I eventually uh, stopped working in my job and from that day on I've never had a job since. So yeah, it was really interesting. I think it was just motivated by hunger to, to do something where I was getting a commission or something over and above getting paid for my time. Pager, that's something that I think that's in a museum nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> there are brilliant little tools. So entrepreneurs are usually exposed to riding the perfect wave and then times are being knocked off your board, so to speak, searching for a breath. How did you cope with the wins and losses that come with the territory of being an entrepreneur at a young age? Look, your comment there about timing is actually really right. And um, so that was something that I didn't learn till much later in life. And I've met three billionaires in my lifetime that I've had a chat to, and every single one of them admitted that timing was a big part of their ultimate big success. And I think that's a good learning for people, actually, because we sort of go to seminars and we write our goals and we work hard, but sometimes it's just not working. And it's because we're just doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And uh, then you see some guy who's not that bright who's over there making a fortune and uh, he's doing the right thing at the right time. <laughs> so I think that's an important lesson. But I think for me, honestly, the biggest secret to my success has been just been that persistence and and recognizing that you really it really is an education. I've failed far, far more than I have succeeded. It's really been the last seven years of being an entrepreneur that it's all come together and the preceding 18 years of entrepreneurship were pretty much struggle. You know, I had a couple of successes that were, you know, became successful, then went away again. Um, but sort of now I've sort of got an enduring um, sort of uh, business um, because I've learned a lot of hard lessons and it's, 
it's you know unfortunately in life and I think entrepreneurship in particular you can only get so much from a book and the rest you have to learn and we all have different lessons to learn because we're all messed up in different ways and uh, you don't know what those ways are until you go out to the school of hard knocks <laughs> <laughs> definitely now talking there a little bit about you know those losses were you someone that could forget really quick or did you kind of hang on to things for a little while um look i mean no not really i mean i i my desire to to have agency over my own life and never ever have to work in a job has just always been so strong that i get knocked down and and very few of them were fatal like nobody died um there was some one point where i lost everything in my late 30s and I had got, you know, a whole bunch of investment properties. Basically, 2008 wiped me out when that happened. I just listed a company, uh, which was my company, and um, I held about 30% of the stock, uh, or 25% of the stock, and I was in escrow. And then it, it was, that happened just before the 2008 crash. And then the, I was escrowed. The stock price went through the floor. Um, couldn't sell the stock even if I wanted to, and even if I could, I wouldn't get anything for it. I had to sell all my houses that I'd accumulated over 20 years at fire sale prices and pump it all into the company as an unsecured loan to, to cash flow the business because I had family and friends uh, invested in there. And I spent the next two or three years working for free to try and save the company, which we eventually did, and I managed to sell out. Uh, and use what little money I did get in that exit to move to America and start again. But, you know, um, I guess um, the, que the question was, how to, uh, was I down long? I didn't have time to be down long. It's a bit like having kids, I suppose. You have to get up in the morning when you've got employees and, and all the rest. You, you, you've just got to keep going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really sit around licking my wounds. I just, I fired up actually under that pressure and said, all right, this is it. What are you made of? Let's let's do this, and um, that's how I've sort of operated. Great approach, because many people would just kind of succumb to that pressure and just go, you know what? I've had enough. I'm out. But you had yeah. that that resilience to persist and keep pushing on. So awesome! I love it. What was the cue to getting a start with Amazon selling? Well, I was running an animation company, which I started myself in Hollywood and uh, in California. I was living in Los Angeles um, and I was making these videos and, and it was going really well. It's basically an agency. and um, But I, I did know in my heart of hearts that I would want to go back to Australia in a few years' time. My goal was to build the business up and then sell it and move home. And I thought, all right, well, when I sell it, I want to use that money to set myself back up, buy a home, some other things. And, um, and but I'm gonna need a cash flow. So a friend of mine over there said, hey, listen, have you seen what this Amazon deal is? And I'm like, no, and we had a coffee and he sat down and said, here's how the business model works. And, and fundamentally what attracted me was, I don't like building websites, I hate Google marketing and Facebook marketing. And um, he basically said, Amazon's this, it's just this beast and it's growing and growing and growing and you can sell products on there just like selling something on eBay, but the big difference is you can put the inventory into their warehouses so you don't actually physically touch your own stock and they'll sell it for you, they'll ship it, pack it and send it for you. And I thought this is the answer to my prayers because I can sell in America, which I was loving being out of Australia and I think you're a New Zealander from the accent there. The hard thing about it for Aussies and Kiwis is we have such small markets and having had a taste of American business, we were going so well, I was like I'd love to have a business where I could sell in America but I could live in Australia, get paid in US dollars, sell to the big markets, 
And um, that's what Amazon offered without me having to touch the products myself. I owned them, but I didn't have to touch them. So that really got my attention. And then I just started it as a side hustle and then it just took off and, and turned into a seven-figure business pretty quickly. And, and it was all just happening while I was running my animation company, which was taking all of my time and focus. And um, yeah, so I got a taste for it and I just loved it. It was, it was super fun and super leveraged. Excellent. So we're going to delve back into the Amazon selling aspect a little bit later on. Yeah. How important is knowing people's pain points and determining what you establish your businesses on? Yeah, look, I think that's super important. I think I think pain points, it depends what, what you're doing as an entrepreneur. Like if you're selling a consumer product, um, you know, sometimes there are pain points, but sometimes you're entering a marketplace where there's just no innovation. You know, the pain, it's a less obvious pain point. Like they think, like Steve Jobs, like people didn't know they were unhappy with computers until they got a Mac. And, and I sort of really believe that um, the future of uh, entrepreneurship is innovation. And, and I believe that because we have millions of people being educated to a high standard in India and China and, and countries like that these days, they're turning out degree qualified people, uh, quality degree qualified people, and the world is getting flatter and the boundaries are becoming less important. So I really believe that the real commodity of value is original thought, design, um, and genuine innovation in process and product. And so I think that's even more important because most pain points have been sort of solved and you've got to push to the next level and recognize that innovation actually will reveal um, the pain that is not obvious. So for you, where is the environment that allows your innovation and creativity to fly? Um, look, I, I, I really try to really look at markets that I'm going into. So for example, Reliable Education, we sell courses on teach people how to um, sell on Amazon. And it's a seedy, snaky, oily business. Right, how to make money online is, is one of the worst businesses in the world in terms of an industry. It's just so scammy. And so getting to our company name that you mentioned at the start, Reliable Education, why did we call it that is because we really sat down and thought, what do people want? Like we, we know that out there in the world, there is a massive amount of pain around finance. People don't like working nine till seven, being told what to do all day, um, quite often by in bad, toxic you know cultures uh, they want they want to change that so they turn to the education space the you know, self-education space and they're confronted with guys in singlets standing in front of lamborghinis telling them that they can retire in two years if they just buy their you know one one nine seven course you know so we identified that there is a massive appetite for genuine solutions to this problem that people have in their lives but the options there, so far as education, are dominated by sketchy people. So what if you actually did a program that genuinely hard it is to do this thing, because it's really hard, right? And it costs money. You can't just start with a thousand or two thousand dollars. You need like ten grand to really start properly. Everyone else is saying, you don't need any money, just buy my program. So we started on that basis and um, we thought about the problem and then we innovated and we introduced policies that were innovative too. For example, we interview everybody who buys our course online and when we ask them, thank you for buying, we appreciate your trust, have you got five, ten grand minimum set aside separate to this to start a business with some inventory and pay for photography? 
And if they say no, like that, I put this on a credit card, I need to get ahead right now, we refund them. And last year we did $2 million of voluntary refunds of education that was already purchased. That's what we actually refunded voluntarily and proactively because we don't want to ever set people back financially. And in our industry, that's absolutely revolutionary because nobody gives the money back, you know. Uh, we actually proactively do it because we're building a community of people that aren't in a situation where they're just absolutely at their last tether. We, we, it doesn't help anybody. So those types of, that's how we approached it. We called it reliable because we, we just figured that was the word that people wanted. They needed to be relying on what they were getting taught and they really wanted a reliable income. They didn't necessarily want to become a gazillionaire. If they could make an extra thousand bucks a month or $10,000 a month, whatever, reliably, they would be over the moon. So that's really where we've sort of entered and, and it's paid off really well. Excellent. So your programs, how long are they? Two weeks, are they two months, are they two years? How, how, does your, yeah. how does the concept work? So we have one, pro, the main program we sell is a self-paced online education program. So you sort of log in and there's 130 self-paced video lessons with resources and mind maps and uh, embedded in that is all our contacts that you'll need, like our freight forwarders, packaging companies, um, inspection providers in China. So when you buy something from a factory, how do you know that what you ordered on the purchase invoice is actually what they've done? Um, so, you know, it's embedded with all of our intellectual property about how to do it from start to finish and it's self-paced. So some people will go through it and, you know, if they're crazy and they binge watch it like Games of Thrones, they probably go through it in a month. Other people who have a life and kids and everything probably take three months and then we, you know, uh, there's other things. There's, it's sort of a business that you've got to do certain things before you can do the next thing. So self-paced online video learning and then we have a, a student summit once a year where we hand out awards to our students who have achieved um, certain levels of success. And we've been doing it three and a half years and that those students, about 8,000 of them now and about half of them alive already, um, have done about 500 and something million dollars in sales on Amazon, half a billion, which is a really, that's the metric we're most proud of is that the, you know, across as an average, the average student's done about 60 grand in sales and that's taking into account half of them that haven't gone live yet. So it's a pretty good number. Brilliant, and so do they, when you have your summits, is that face-to-face -face or is that online? Um, no, that's face-to-face, -face, yeah. We had um, former Prime Minister John Howard come and speak at the last one and the one before that we had Ida Butro. So they're, they're, they're real in-person events. Um, there's no selling at the events. It's three days. Um, they're just an extraordinary event because they're good people who have been brought into a community the right way um, and they have realistic expectations about the journey ahead of them. So some of them haven't, aren't live after a year because the family got in the way. And they're delighted because they knew that was going to be the path when they started. Hmm, very good. So how, like, is, is there any kind of secrets around deciding what the right product is for, for you to sell? Yeah, there is. Um, so we teach two key ideas. So the first one is um, that Amazon is like a dating site. And if we're really honest about how people are, when you go to a dating site, the first thing you look at is the photo. <laughs> so, yeah. If there's no chemistry there, you're done. So it's the same thing with Amazon. People look up, you know, kids stuffed elephant and then a whole bunch are shown. And the first thing we do is look at the photos of the stuffed elephant, see which one we think is cute. And then what we do is we look at the other variables. So two things around photos. One, you need amazing quality photos, right? You can't just take a photo with your iPhone anymore. Those days are over. The standard is too high now. And the second piece is if you can visually differentiate your product 
um, it will uh, help. And, and there are certain categories and niches where there's literally zero innovation. For example, if you look up shower chairs, shower chairs are right now dominated by big medical companies that sell shower chairs to aged care facilities, hospitals, and no entrepreneurs go in and say, I'm going to start a shower chair company for disabled and aging people because it's not sexy. They want to go and sell supplements or skincare or whatever. But if you look it up on Amazon today, you'll see that they're all white, they all have gray adjustable legs, and they're all made of plastic. There's just no innovation at all. And you just look at them and go, I feel sick just looking at them. I feel like my leg hurts just looking at them. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you just went in there and maybe said, well, what if the seat was made of wood, like the type of boating wood that's beautifully, highly polished, completely waterproof, and just warms the chair up a little bit in terms of the look of it. I mean, somebody's got to put this in their house and see it every day. Um, it would stand out like crazy on page one of Amazon and people go, I really like that wooden one with the matte black legs instead of those hospital looking silver legs with the big gray rubber um, feet on them. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? So just sometimes a little bit of innovation can go a long way. For sure, it's a unique differentiating point that that attracts the subconscious mind. Yeah, and then you just gotta sell things where, you gotta first of all sell things where there's demand and my software company's on Guru all it does, it does a lot of things, but one of them is it's a little part of the software is a Chrome plugin. So you, you install it on Chrome, you go to Amazon, and then you click on any product. So you put in shower chairs and you hit the Zonguru button and it tells you each product, there's 20 products on page one, it'll tell you how much each one is doing per month in sales. So it makes looking at Amazon really fun because <laughs> you're, yeah. going, you're kidding me, that person selling that is making that. So you sell things where people are already buying them, uh, this is a three-point checklist. Sell things people already buy. Number two, sell things people care about. We call it the gas factor, give a shit. <laughs> so sell things that people give a shit about because they will reward you for innovation. If it's tissues, there's only so much they're going to spend on a packet of tissues when there's a packet of tissues from Kleenex, right? It's, it's not really a high care factor product, whereas a, a shower chair or a wedding dress or a wedding cake topper or something, people care about those things. And then the third thing is you have to be able to identify a visual preferably a visual gap in the market and an opportunity to make something visually stand out in a way that people want it. And if you can do those three things, you greatly increase your chances of success. And to test it, that visual thing, we say to our students, print out page one products of Amazon, just the photo. Just print each photo out and then get a 3D um, render done of your product, stick it in the middle of it and get 20 of your friends around and see if they pick your one out of the lineup. And if they don't, you haven't got a product that people like. Mm. I like yeah. that approach. Very good. So, so practical. <laughs> yeah. So, so many businesses struggle to get past that solopreneur space, whereas you've been able to obviously develop a number of companies where you can scale and grow them. What have you found has allowed you to be able to scale and grow businesses successfully? Yeah. Well, look, I think looking back on my own career, um, I made the, the mistake for a long time that an entrepreneur is, is somebody who starts everything from scratch and needs to be the, um, the innovator at all levels. And so, you know, you start off with, you know, I've got this idea for a product that doesn't exist um, and I'm going to spend a year of my life developing this product and getting patents and everything else. And then you've got, even if the product is good, you've then got all these business problems to solve like, 
building a website, how do you get people to that website? Um, what, what, what I failed to do is think, okay, I've got this great thing. How is the actual transaction going to occur? Where is it going to occur? Is it going to occur online? Is it going to occur with somebody sitting in a coffee shop selling over the top of a laptop? And who's going to be that salesperson? So how is the transaction actually going to occur and where? And um, is it going to be me? And if it's me, I've only got 24 hours in a day. A lot of people don't think about this. They just go, I'm just going to go out there and start selling. And they start selling, doing what they're doing. But they are the bottleneck in their business as soon as they reach a certain point. And they never budget it in. Their pricing never never accommodated in their business plan to pay somebody competent 100, 150 grand a year to actually do that piece. And so their business comes undone right there and then. So I started to assess everything through the lens of, does this business stack with somebody else doing everything? I just want to be the shareholder in the business that I start eventually. And if it doesn't stack with somebody else doing every piece of it all the way through, then it's not a business. It's actually a job with a psychotic boss that gives you no time off called you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so um, it sort of narrowed the field of what I would pursue as an opportunity. And it provides a rigor to assess opportunities that most uh, yeah, inexperienced entrepreneurs don't have because they don't value their time yet and they just think that they can work, 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 but they just build a prison of their own making. So we're starting to get a bit of an understanding of your leadership style. How would you say your team or the people you work with describe you as a leader? <laughs> um, look, I'm, I'm going to say a word which sounds extremely aloof and, and self-congratulatory <laughs> and And I'll explain why I use the word because it's a very specific word. And the word is visionary. And the reason I say visionary is because we have a mantra at our company and that we teach all of our students, which is that your job as an entrepreneur is to apply three things, vision, standards, recruitment. No matter how small or big your business is, your first job is to create a compelling vision for you, for your employees, for your customers, for all the stakeholders. You have to create a compelling vision then you need to articulate the standards. So in a very simple way to articulate standards in a business is to have an always never list. We always do these five things and we never do these five things. So you create the vision, you articulate the standards and then your job is to recruit incredible people who fully buy into those things. And if you do that, you create a compelling vision and, and, and at Reliable Education, we really do have a compelling vision which involves um, you know, we have this flywheel, which is we we educate people, we liberate them from the nine to five, we amplify their story, and then we teach them how to give, like how to create a socially responsible enterprise. And we show them by what we do in our own business. Like when we started, we said every single course we sell, we're going to do a micro loan to a third world country, interest free to an entrepreneur who's trying to start their own business. We've now done 8,000 loans into the market. And then about a year in, we started uh, sponsoring villages in uh, Indonesia for eye surgery. There are four million uh, needlessly blind people, and we paid for entire an entire village. And just last month at our summit, we raised two hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars. One hundred and eighty of that came from the audience, and the other seventy thousand we um, we put in ourselves. Um, you know, to, to so we sh we show this is what you do when you're successful in your business. And so 
as a result of that, that creates a compelling vision. So that's that's our flywheel and our demonstrated value of using education to liberate people and then give back and liberate others. It's about having that greater purpose. 100%. So as your businesses have grown, how have you known when to fire yourself? Um, look, very simple. Um, Right from the very start, the mission is to fire myself from every single thing I'm doing. Um, and I've been pretty successful at that. Now I have um, four companies and all four are run by CEOs. And there are, there, are per, there are certain pinch points as an entrepreneur, like my animation company, I started it on my own using a contracting company to do my AdWords. And I was the salesperson. And then when I got an order, I would outsource the, the actual work to a, to a offshore animation studio. That's how I began the business. Uh, the pinch point was when it came time for me to stop handling the leads and get somebody else to call the customers back and, and, and sell them. And it was nerve wracking. And there are certain moments in every business where every entrepreneur faces the letting go to grow mantra of it's time to let go of this. It's very scary and it's very hard. And it may involve a period of time where you don't get paid, you know, because the commission you were getting on selling the widget now has to be given to somebody else and then they have to get it to a certain level, there's sort of this free fall between you know, the company growing to a point where you can start taking a salary again and um, so on. So there's these various pinch points. Um, but I think I, as I've gotten older, I've realized it's not a business if it doesn't make money with somebody else doing everything else and you either live by that mantra or you don't. And if you don't live by that mantra, you will never really have a business. You'll just have a, a thing that consumes all of your time and you've got much greater risk perhaps than someone else. So I guess I, I, I've known it's time if I'm repeatedly doing something, um, then that can be done by somebody else. It's time to fire me. And the only in it reliable education, the piece I can't fire myself from now is just the large public speaking events that I do. And a lot of people go, oh, you know, because I, I, I tour with um, Tony Robbins and Gary Vaynerchuk and shortly Grant Cardone, some of these big guys. But that's only a very small percentage of our business. About 80% of our business is digital, online, and only about 20% of our business or less comes from live events. Okay. So what gets you out of bed every day with a spring in your step to, you know, obviously, as, a, as an owner or founder of these businesses? Well, some days I stumble out of bed with no spring at all in my step, <laughs> to be honest. And I think, you know, we sort of can create a picture, you know, through social media or whatever we like of, of how things are. But, but there, there is plenty of days uh, where I'm super stressed and I still overwork on certain days, especially now, you know, because the company has just grown so much. Um, you know, in three and a half years, we've gone from zero to multi eight figure business. That's that's hard with no outside funding, you know, and we've, you know, we've, we've done that, you know, organically. So, um, you know, we don't spring out of bed every day, but uh, I have had two fairly um, significant uh, bouts with anxiety, uh, um, like proper panic attacks, hospitalized twice from it in, in the United States. Uh, when I was living there, I haven't suffered as much since I've moved back to Australia. I now live on the beach and I try to be much, much more aware now of mental health, my own mental health. Um, and uh, I'm much more um, self-care around food, uh, sleep, 
um, things like that. I, whereas before, I just was like, I can just keep going. I'm Superman. But I, I certainly learned the hard way that I am not that. So I, I do have a much more balanced, at least understanding. I'm, I'm certainly not perfect uh, all the time, but I'm being aware is a, a huge first step. And, and if, you know, for me, I find it quite fascinating when you hear people say, I'm in the pursuit of happiness, or they kind of portray they're in pursuit of the happiness. But shouldn't it be, I'm actually happy in the pursuit of what I'm doing? And that kind of sounds like what you're doing now. Oh, look, to be absolutely clear, I am happy. Um, and and that, that, that I can say hand on heart. I, am, I do overwork and, and do have some stress. But I, I think the greatest lesson I have, the giving component um, that has been new in my life over the last four years, you know, from the time I first went boots on ground to a charitable experience that I was paying for, and I ab- sat there with somebody who's been blind and actually see them, stand with them in the surgery, hold their hand, and then take them back out, and then the next day see the patches come off. That experience changed me, and um, I got the numbers yesterday. There's now 1,350 people that we have cured from blindness in the last two years, which we're really proud of. But um, the lesson from it was that happiness is not on the other side of a Ferrari or a million dollars a year income or whatever it is that you're aspiring to have. It really is just on the other side of gratitude, which is as simple as waking up in the morning and writing a gratitude list or just thinking about how grateful we are i mean if we live in australia or america or any of these first world countries we're insanely blessed we're insanely wealthy by any standard on a global basis so uh, i i never forget that and you know that that's so dear to my how i live my life these days so if you had any mentors or support team that you've established around yourself during your journey as an entrepreneur Look, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say mentors as much. I have a couple of mates who have done, you know, really substantial things in business, you know, built $100 million plus companies um, that I do lean on occasionally for advice. Um, uh, but more what has been helpful for me is uh, a multiple uh, sort of masterminds, some of them more formal than others, I'm probably in two or three sort of masterminds of various forms. And like when I moved to LA, um, I met a, a guy in an agency that I pitched and we just clicked and he's now actually the CEO of my software company and part owner as well now. Um, but we met, I went to his agency to pitch for the animation work and I said, mate, we should catch up for a coffee and we did. And then he was sort of a similar age to me and I said, I'm new to LA, I need to meet people. And he said, yeah, I've got a few mates who are sort of trying to do things. And we sort of formed and every month we met, every month for like four years and we've developed such great friendships of just dudes that are about the same age that are aspiring to be entrepreneurs or are entrepreneurs. Um, and that sort of mateship has been invaluable to people that you can actually really talk to about the, the hardships of entrepreneurship because it is, it's a psychotic choice. I mean, it's really stressful. It's nonstop. And especially if it's like my phone, it literally does not stop. So just being able to talk to other people and, and, and just have that downtime outside of an office, sometimes we'll go jet skiing, sometimes we'll just catch up for a coffee sometimes we'll do something else so next week i'm actually away in the wit sundays with three of them and there's no agenda it's just we've we've booked a a catamaran we're just going to go sailing for a week in the wit sundays just hanging out as guys that sort of appreciate where the life choices that we've made and just hang out and support each other so do you have any sort of habits and routines on a daily basis that allow you to lead kind of the active and healthy lifestyle well on my good days uh 
<laughs> I will, will meditate. I pretty much go to the beach pretty much every morning and I'll swim in the ocean even now in the middle of winter pretty much every morning. Uh, I'll go for a walk with my partner and we'll, you know, talk and have time where the phones are left at home. We ban the phones on the beach um, and uh, eat really well, you know. Um, my partner, she's vegan and super healthy, so as a result of that, I guess I'm almost vegan. <laughs> uh, occasionally when I'm out with the boys, I might have a, a steak or a something. But So I eat pretty well. I don't drink that much. I don't do any bad things. You know? And I, I just look after myself. I, I, I don't burn the candle at both ends as best I can. You know. So, But meditation is certainly something that I would advise anybody to develop a practice in. That's really been transformational for me. Um, even though in the most stressed times it does tend to not be as regular as it should be. But in my good, normal periods, I'd meditate every day as well. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the <laughs> best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? That's actually an interesting question. When was the last time I did something for the first time? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm just trying to think. That's actually a good question. <laughs> I, look, I don't know. I mean, I went to new places, but I don't know if that qualifies as first time. I'm sailing next week on a catamaran for the first time. So I guess there's that. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Oh, that's good. So what is the one question that you would love to solve? What is the one question? If I could solve Pareto's principle, I think I'd be a very happy dude. <laughs> Why is it the 80-20 rule applies universally across everything? Why don't more people move into the 20%? I probably think it's more like a 95-5, but why is it that so few of us uh, you know, move into those categories? Very good question. And how do you know you're in a peak state of mind? Uh, I think when it's effortless and it's in flow and I, and I think I play the drums. I've just bought a drum kit recently after years of not playing. I used to play in a band when I was a teenager and actually I was in Bali at one of the uh, blind events, you know, charity events that we do and at, at, in the evening I went to um, the bar with everyone and they had this sort of amazing Asian cover band and they got me up on the drums and I hadn't played drums for 20 years not kidding I just stopped doing it when I got to about 15 or 16 and I had such a kick out of it and I just got back down I didn't think about time I was just having a laugh and then I got home and I bought a top of the line electric drum kit which I have here and I've been playing it almost every day since and I just don't think about work I'm not thinking about business I'm just having a blast so I think when I'm in flow and it's like all areas like love and um, uh, music and all those things when it's good you just time disappears and you're just enjoying it Brilliant. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for them to connect with you? The best way is just through the website, uh, reliable.education. There's no .com or anything, just reliable.education. Um, or uh, I'm also on Instagram, so Adam Hudson Official. Most days I do like five to ten minutes of coaching um, and it's um, it's really fun coaching. It's very direct, very honest. If I'm having a great day, which is most days, I'll say that. If I'm not, I'll tell you as well. So it's very real and, and uh, people seem to enjoy that. So if you want to follow me there, it's free and you can hang out there. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've loved the real authenticity that you bring. Uh, your, 
you're quite humble in your approach and the way you support different aspects in your life. And I love the ability that you, you don't just stand up and go, yep, my day's awesome and I get up with a spring in my step. You are actually very real about saying, you know, look, there are days which are quite challenging. There are days that I overwork and I don't quite get it right, but I'm constantly working on that to ensure that I can perform at a much better level. You've had a highly successful career and it's great to see that you have the resilience and the tenacity to continue to, when you hit that bottom of the of the wave, that you've got that energy and that drive to get back to the top again and ensure that you continue moving forward. And I think that's just a wonderful approach on life. So I thank you very much for your time today, the wonderful insights you've shared, and I'm sure our listeners will take a lot, of, a lot home from this and be able to help their lives uh, improve as an entrepreneur and even as people. Great, thank you for having me, mate. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is time on business. Most CEOs and leaders get lost in the business rather than spending time on the business. You'll find it invaluable to find one to two times per week for a half day where you spend time on the business. You need to block out your calendar and make a decision and a commitment to clear weekly time for strategic thinking, direction, and reflection. This thinking, reflecting, and creating time should be effectively used to drive growth and develop the future of the business. Thanks for listening to the insightful conversation with Adam Hudson on future of Amazon entrepreneurship on episode 42 of the Active CEO podcast. To ensure you keep up to date with the latest Active CEO podcast, please make sure you select the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. And to ensure that more people learn from our amazing guests, please leave an Active CEO podcast review on iTunes. Our passion is to help people live a healthier and more active lifestyle. That's why we spend time with people guiding them to be high-performing CEOs and leaders. Through breaking the CEO code and breaking the corporate code, we deliver the four basic fundamentals required to achieve high performance and the three Ps of CEO or leader high performance, which are CEO periodization, CEO presence, and CEO performance. It's important that sport coaches and high-performance staff are in a high-performing state so they can deliver the optimal high-performance environment for their athletes. So we develop Breaking the Coach Code as you don't want to be the cause of your athletes producing a substandard performance. Please feel free to contact us on energytoperform.com or craig at nrg2perform.com to book a complimentary call to find out how the Breaking the CEO Code or Breaking the Coach Code can help you deliver a higher performance. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. 
Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.